0: You shut it down.
1: Don't you yeah. Welcome to the first episode of the New Color Podcast. I've been threatening all of my colleagues. I am going to do this for a couple of years. And finally, I couldn't put it off any longer because one of my marketing heroes, Jeff Moore, is going to be speaking, keynoting, at the Crossing the Cactus uh, Summit here in Santa Fe on May 2nd. And I was able to nab him as my first guest, which is a great honor to have. Jeff, Jeff it's nice to see you again.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Sarah. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: I uh, met Jeff uh, more years ago than either of us cared to remember uh, when I had a high tech startup called Potomac Botonics. We invented and manufactured the laser for lasik eye surgery. And I was working with a company in in, uh, Southern California, another laser company. And uh, I was uh, a young woman and working with a bunch of middle-aged and older men. And I could not get them to believe market segmentation strategy, which was (laughs) what my my, uh, graduate work was at Johns Hopkins. And, and I had read Jeff's book and heard him speak at some big conference, and I thought, they need to hear this from a man. They need to, because in the industry then, in least manufacturing, I mean, there were very few, women. and I thought, they need to hear this from a man, but also from a man who knows how to articulate these concepts. And... It, you just opened their eyes, and uh, the rest is history. Of course, we all know what happened with LASIK, and then uh, Domino, I think, has since been bought by Brother. And, uh, it, you know, the concepts that you brought to uh, to marketing high-technology products was was really revolutionary at the time in the way that you thought about it. And so how do you think this has changed? I mean, it's been quite a while. Um, when, I saw the, when I read the new book, the latest edition, I thought this is as relevant today as when we first read the book uh, when I was a young woman. And so how do you feel things have changed and how much has it stayed the same?
0: Well, it's interesting. So, so the book is about how disruptive technologies influence a marketplace and, and how the marketplace absorbs disruptive technologies. And back when you and I were first started, virtually all the tech business was business to business. There was very little consumer. It It was virtually all what we call B2B. I don't think the B2B part has changed a great deal because the whole key to that model was pragmatic people want to hear references from each other and they want to see things in production before they make any big bet on a new technology. And so what we were seeing in the technology adoption lifecycle was the early adopters didn't need that kind of reassurance, and they would go ahead and so you'd have this early success in the market. But then you have this thing we called the chasm, because then you had to convince the pragmatists, and the pragmatists didn't think the early market were the kind of references that they wanted to hear from. They wanted to hear from their peers, and their peers weren't doing it yet. And so there was this whole thing about how do you cross the chasm? It turned out what you had to do is you had to win a – this is where market segmentation came in. You had to pick a market segment that had an urgent use case. You'd go in there and you'd come with what we called the whole product, not just your product, but everything that they needed, and get them going. It was a little bit like kindling, starting a fire. Once you got the first segment to then the pragmatist in that segment to say, hey, tough problem. We couldn't solve it in any conventional way. We tried these new guys. It worked. Then all of a sudden, now you had the references on the other side. It's a little bit like winning the New Hampshire primary. Not a lot of delegates, but you get to, you get to go to the, get to the, go to the, the, the uh, convention. So that was the idea. That pattern, because of the way business decisions are made, they're still made essentially by pragmatic people talking back and forth to each other. That pattern hasn't changed. I would say the one thing that has changed in, in, the, in this century is consumer computing, which was really a, a fraction of a fraction has become huge, and I think the chasm model for consumer computing is okay, but not really the best.
1: And and what do you think is the best?
0: Well, I, in, the, in the in the last edition, I put in a model called the five, four gears, but it was it's, it's derived from a bunch of other folks. But essentially, it's all about getting momentum because with consumer purchases, you only have to convince one person. It's not like you have to get a purchase order through purchasing. And secondly, they can try and buy, or you can do a lot of freemium things. And so as a result, it's, there's much less risk in, in adopting a, a new technology as a consumer. And the whole chasm technology adoption lifecycle ultimately was about how do pragmatic people process risk. And so mm-hmm. if the risk is a lot lower, then that framework is less important.
1: Yeah, and um, you mentioned something that, you know, was really dear to my heart, which, which is the complete product. And of course, you and I both know the work that um, Bill Davidow did in in that space at when he was at Intel, and the, my other hero. And um, you know, can you talk a little bit about you know the complete product? Because I think you have a really unique take on it.
0: Well, it's interesting. So the guy, the guy that introduced the concept originally, that both Bill and I were drafting off of was a guy named Ted Levitt at, uh, at Harvard. He wrote, a, he wrote a whole thing around, he, and he had these sort of visions of the whole product. But the key idea behind it was, you know, as a technologist, you're focused on your product. You're focused on what Andy Grove wanted to call the 10X effect. You want to take some performance dimension to where nobody's ever, it's Star Wars, where no, no one's ever gone before kind of thing, which is great. But what the pragmatist is saying is, great, amazing performance but i need to, i need the solution to my problem so what the whole product really was a code word code phrase for was for this market segment and this use case you need to bring the complete bill of materials to solve that use case and you probably have to bring partners with you to help to, you deliver that use case because you probably can't do it all by yourself but until you orchestrate that team of partners and and, and architect that solution and bring it more or less Pre-baked to the customer on the other side of the chasm, you're not going to win that marketplace. And so that was that was a that was kind of an eye opener for engineers because mm-hmm. you know they, they, they you know what was cool about it. These are these men that the laser company were talking about. <laughs> but the thing they, that they could understand is, well, it's like a system. And you say, yeah, it's just markets are like systems. Well, as soon as it was like a system, well, I'm an engineer, I understand systems. And so yeah. that was that's where the fun stuff started.
1: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And and the interesting thing to, to me about the, the concept of the complete product is that it's not just the tactical side. It's often all the stuff around it. So it's like how are you going to package it so it doesn't break in shipping, right? Um, and one time at the laser company, uh, we had a contract with um, Anheuser-Busch in that big giant factory that's on route 5 in, in southern california and they had a million dollars of lasers blow up and they wa- they were all under warranty and they wanted a warranty repair uh, you know credit for a million dollars and you know it was a long time ago when a million dollars was a lot of money <laughs> and so i flew out with the head of uh, qc and I get to the production line, and it's very clear that these guys were not following the sign that read, you have to reconnect the air cooling or the water cooling, whichever it was, um, before you start the production line again. And and so I turned to the guy from Anheuser-Busch who had flown in from St. Louis, and I said, um, do your people read? And my, my person was horrified that I would say this, but I'm a marketing person, and it's like I need to understand everything about the customer, right? Yes. Do These guys read, and the Anheuser-Busch guy says to me, well, we think the, the supervisors read, but we're not sure if they all read in English. <laughs> and, and I said, clearly, there's a problem with this sign, and we need to put in uh, a sensor, a temperature sensor, so that if they don't reconnect the cooling, it shuts down the production line. And yeah. I can tell you, Anheuser Busch does not ever want a production line shut down. <laughs>
0: right. And well, the beer alone—I mean, beer drinkers yeah. everywhere—and
1: <laughs> right. that's the thing. I mean, it's—it's it's those things that uh, the technologists don't think about because, of course, we all read, right? Right. right. And I think that. It's those those things around the technologies that really trip people up.
0: And I, I would say that one of the things that's been exciting about consumer computing is because consumers are even less you know, even less prepared to, to yep. you know, go the extra mile for a product. We've learned through the user experience and now we're talking a lot about the customer experience. And and, and, and the vendors taking more and more and more responsibility for, for, for saying, look, I have to make my customer successful, especially now that we're going to these consumption models or subscription models where they'll unsubscribe. So I think, you know, when you and I first started out, the customer was kind of stuck. And basically once they bought our product, they had to figure out how to get value out of it. And nobody nobody on, on the vendor side felt like it was their responsibility to make the customer successful. Their responsibility is to make the product work. And it was the customer's responsibility to get the value out. And that's changed dramatically now you know if you don't if the customer doesn't get the value out, the vendor's going to lose. that didn't used to be the case, but that's now the case
1: yeah it's it's really has changed and i I think that's for the good um so coming back to the crossing the the cactus uh summit and uh dave Bliddens, uh i know has spoken with you about um you know what's happening in places like here in New Mexico where uh, we have a, I think, the highest per capita, uh, you know, number of uh, inventions coming out of the national labs because of Los Alamos and Sandia and all of the great work going on here. And then they reach a point where, okay, we, you know, we've got through the initial, initial, very early stages. And I know that Dave, uh, who who does work in, in that space in, in the funding side, is really interested in how do you do what he calls the chasm before the chasm? How is how, yeah. how
0: that? Yeah, so it's great. And, and by the way, we found that th- that chasm actually existed also back in the 90s. It was called a corporate lab. So, for example, you know, you, you would have IBM labs or HP labs or Nokia labs or... Yeah, uh, you know, digital. Uh, you know, digital had something called uh, Park in in in, in Seattle and Xerox Park. Mm-hmm. The problem with all those places were they invented the product, but they couldn't commercialize it. In fact, what they thought was once you had it, basically a product that worked, they should give it to a commercial organization to take it to market. But what would happen is the commercial organization would say, "Well, wait a minute, you know, there's the, there's no market research here. We don't have the developed customers, whatever." So the gap essentially has to be filled by startups. And so so Silicon Valley grew up around people that left Xerox, left HP, left, you know, left Tandem and started startups because the, the corporate lab stuff couldn't get to scale inside public companies. So that was great. So Silicon Valley gets this incredible reputation. It's this amazing place uh, for doing that. It, 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 it did come together here first, but now you realize, okay, there's a system here and this whole notion of having incubators and now that we have angel funding we can do a lot this chasm before the chasm is you've got to create a business that is real enough that mm-hmm. somebody can now start mm-hmm. thinking about crossing the chasm so mm-hmm. you have to get you have to have product you have to have customers mm-hmm. but you you're not at scale yet and you, you're not a, you're not really a you're not really a persistent company until you cross the chasm but you have to get to get to the chasm you've got to do that much work. And so the fact, and the labs—if they stay in the lab, it'll never happen. So what you have to—the postdoc from the university or the lab person's got to leave Sandia or leave Los Alamos, get some venture uh, funding, start a company, and get it far enough down the path that the rest of the world can go, oh, maybe maybe there's something to acquire here, or maybe we should buy this product and see what it does. That's that's the chasm before the chasm.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we'll be talking quite a lot. Uh, Dave has uh, a number of really uh, fascinating people from the DC side and from the corporate side and uh, everything in between to really tackle that problem. Uh, I know that, you know, particularly in a first state like New Mexico, being able to tap into uh, more of those resources would be really great for the economic development. Uh, here um i still kind of uh, come back to the um the technologist and um having been in in the laser world for you know decades um it was a natural progression we did very early work in 3d printing um and i attend a you know a ton of 3d printing meetings and there's one particular group that I belong to who are a bunch of kids, they're kids to me, um, and they meet on Thursday nights, On and it's a video thing, so and, and they do it. For me, it's great because it's 7 p.m. I don't know how the East Coast kids do it at 9 p.m. I'd be asleep, um, and it's called 3D Drunk, and you bring your drinks, and we have like this happy hour. And and they're really fun, but every now and then, and they all think I'm fascinating, right? Because I've done this, because I'm old, and I've done this a long time. So every now oh. and then, though, you know, there'll be some technologist in there who gets really um, uh, uh, adamant about the, uh, the the product side and doesn't really get the other side. And how do we open up? Uh, the technologist to um really being more open to the marketing side and all of the other functions that have to happen. I mean, there's finance. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, so normally, if you know, I I spent the last twenty years associated with a venture fund. It was actually Bill Davidow's venture fund called More mm-hmm. Davidow, and then it became you know, Bill. Left, but there was a fun for a long time, and now there's a new one called Wildcat Technology Ventures. It's some of the same partners, and we've been together now for a while. And so one of the things we look at is when you're funding a startup right from scratch, like there's PowerPoint, you're actually looking for a two-headed entrepreneur, not a one-headed. So the one-headed entrepreneur would be this, the technologist. The problem with that is all the issues you just said. You can't build a company just around a technology and a product. So you, you're looking for the somebody we call the entrepreneur, or sometimes the business founder, or the technical founder. The technical founder doesn't have to. But the technical founder just wants to say, "All I really care about is lazing. Uh, and by the way, I'm on the board of, a, of, of one of the, our investments in a laser company called Enlight, and three D printing is okay. a very big, very big deal for them.
1: Is is that Milton Chang's company?
0: No, no. This is no. up in v- no. This is up in Vancouver, Washington. Scott, okay. Oh, yeah. It's a public company now. It's a, it, it, it's been a it, it was a unicorn. So, but it was a unicorn that took like twenty years to 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 to, to find its way home. But it did. Um, but anyway, uh, but back to this point, the, you, you, you really are investing in an entrepreneur who has that ability to understand. Look, it's great that the product's a great product, but if it doesn't have impact on the world, mm-hmm. if it doesn't if it doesn't create economic value. It's not going anywhere. And so and so finding that 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 place to create those, and it starts initially with just project work. You you find somebody like an Anheuser-Busch or somebody who says, Look, we're gonna do this. We think it's a great idea. Those are these early adopting, visionary kind of customers. And then you have this problem, okay, but how would you create a repeatable business? And that's when you get into that use case. We have this one phrase that one of my colleagues, Todd Hewlett, uh, invented for me, and it's just stayed with me for 20 years, which is when you're crossing the chasm and you're trying to create your first real kind of repeatable business model, you want to find a market segment that is big enough to matter, small enough to lead, and a good fit with your crown jewels. And that to <laughs> me, it's like, that is like if I had to have like, if I had like a, like a little, right on a little card, I mean, you've, how do you figure? How do you target a market on the other side of chasm? big enough to matter means if you're if you're like five million dollars, let's suppose you had, let's suppose you developed a business that had two or three or five, four or five million dollars worth of business, whatever it doesn't matter. But the point is, then it probably ought to be fifty million. But it sure as heck, shouldn't be five hundred million because there's no way you're going to lead a market that big anytime soon. But if it's big enough to matter, meaning I could grow ten times my size in this segment. And it's small enough to lead, meaning if I just doubled my size, I'd have 20% share. Mm-hmm. That's the kind. Of, and then it's got to be a great fit with your crown jewels so you, that your, your technology breaks the back of a problem. Of the, of the use case you've targeted, man, you, you just nailed that use case in a way that nobody ever imagined. And that's, that's, why, they, that's why they take that chance with you.
1: That is a, a really succinct description. And, and we don't, you know, that, that says it all in, in a nutshell. Um, years ago, I heard um, uh, Scott Kirshner from the uh, Boston Globe, the innovation columnist, interview Clyde Christensen um, at some tech event. And he said, uh, Clyde, what is the number one uh, uh, trait that an entrepreneur should have. And uh, and Christensen said humility. And it was very interesting to me because my business partner, who actually had the same last name, same spelling as Claude Christensen, and was a Mormon or raised a Mormon, um, was the most humble human being I'd ever met. And so here's a guy who, you know, invents lasers and when I started, when I met him and started talking to him about his business, he said, you know, I don't know anything about marketing and I need somebody. I can't do this. And uh, I really need a partner. And it was really interesting because I think our company was successful because we were both, I didn't care about power and he was humble and we would defer to each other. And if it was a decision that was a marketing decision, he always you know trusted my judgment and if it was uh, inventing a laser certainly i I didn't get involved and when you put those two elements together, you have a very very powerful team
0: it, it's funny you know because we obviously have seen the opposite of humility in our culture in all parts of our culture recently uh, yes. but but even some of the even some of the i mean I would argue that that Elon Musk is not humble uh, uh, Steve Jobs wasn't humble but but what they were, and where I think the humility, and particularly when you think about Clay Christensen and his, his, his particular values, because he also, as you know, was raised as a Mormon. Yep. Is, <laughs> uh, it was a humility, a humility, which meant I'm going to put myself in service to something bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ultimately, in, in business, that means I'm going to put myself in service to solving this problem, to having impact in the world, to helping this customer. Now, what's important about humility was they were humble, but they were bold. So you say, "But well, wait a minute, those those are opposite. No, no, they're not opposite. Humble just says it's not about me. Mm-hmm. Bold says I'm willing to take significant risk to accomplish to achieve my values. So you want to have, but 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 yeah, the, the 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 about me thing gets. I mean, and we have, you know, I mean, I would say that that Mark Zuckerberg a lot about Mark Zuckerberg, and, and a lot of these people are, and it's like. No, that's not right. You, you want to be you want to be about the people you the people or the cause that you're in service to.
1: Exactly, and, and trusting the people you work with. You know, trusting the decision making. Uh, and coming back to the technologist, I mean, uh, you know, my partner really understood yeah. that it was not his area of expertise. And what I see happens a lot in marketing is our vocabulary is from the regular world it's really hard to fake it on the technical side because the vocabulary is hard you know unless you really know what you're talking about you know if you're talking about capillary electrophoresis you have to know something about it right (laughs) but it's easy to talk about markets and talk about all, all all the vocabulary that we use in marketing and that's why I sometimes think it's easy for technology people to say oh well this is easy You know, I can just yeah.
0: But I think what's happening there is, and this is, and by the way, I think the marketing profession has to take some responsibility here. So Mm -hmm. marketing actually can have two really increasingly separate meanings. They can be joined, but they can also separate. One is the language we use to encourage people to entertain the purchase of a product, Mm -hmm. and that is a very vocabulary-based, language-based narrative. The other way to think about it, though, and, and the way that can create accountability for marketing, is no marketing is about creating markets and and then and then economically uh, and materially profiting from those markets. Well, now now it's accountability. So and, and so when we, when we were talking about segment share and crossing the chasm, the classic accountability thing was, in this segment for this use case, we're going to identify the top thirty customers in the world. Who would be the perfect targets for these? And we're going to go get five in the first year. And if we don't go get five in the first year, that would that now, that was it a failure in marketing and sales and, and, and execution. But we were holding ourselves accountable, so it wasn't just that we were telling it, putting lipstick on a pig is the way an, an engineer. We got we think of marketing a lot of times. It's like no, mm-hmm. we are we are we are holding ourselves accountable to creating an outcome in the world that has impact. And I think that's important because otherwise, marketing—you're right—can it can be like fake news. And once you're in the world of fake news, we're, we're lost.
1: No, that that's exactly right. And I always uh, correct my staff when they talk about when they talk about promotion, and and they call it marketing. And I say, no, no, no. You know, promotion is just one of the four Ps. Right, Um, an old Kotler.
0: Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, yes.
1: One of the four Ps, and it always starts with the product. It always starts with designing the product properly. And if you design the product properly, then all the other decisions, in my mind, flow into place, and then you are... You right know, pricing all of the other things that you deal with come come into play. I think
0: the thing the thing about the 4 Ps was though the 4 Ps was a consumer model and so the whole product actually was the 5th P because you know when you when, when you're selling a consumer product you know you you introduce a new cereal you're not worried if it's compatible with the milk right I mean right. it's like it, right. it, it, you don't have to worry about the whole product but in tech we did and so that was the 5th right. P
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that is exactly right. It is always so much fun to talk to you and I think that was, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, struck me the first time I heard you speak was, you know, how, how engaging your talks are and I think that the Crossing the Cactus uh, event is going to be so much fun and uh, and is there anything you'd like to add before? We
0: you know, I, I, I could just box. say that, that my wife is, a, is an artist and, and, and has always wanted to go to Santa Fe. And so I'm we're, we're going to take advantage of thing, which I'm very excited about. But I, you know, I've always been at, you know, Sandia Labs and Los Alamos. I mean, these have been words that I've known my whole life. The Santa Fe Institute and the whole thing about complexity, mm-hmm. uh, you know complex systems, I mean, there's so much that that that's exciting for me, so I'm very much looking forward to being there.
1: Oh, that's fantastic, yeah, it is a very special place, and uh I'm very blessed to be able to to live here. Uh, and we're going to be able to hear Jeff uh, keynote at the Crossing the Cactus Summit May 2nd to 4th in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a beautiful place if you've never been here, a very special place with great food and art and culture. And uh, the website for uh, more information on the program is Crossing the Cactus dot com, just as it sounds, with no dots or dashes. And Jeff, it has been a lot of fun talking to you again. Thank you okay, so much,
0: sir. Well, good to talk with you as well.